This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Teenagers, hormones, and mobile phones can be a potent and sometimes dangerous mix. Recent high-profile sexting cases have raised concerns about how Colorado law deals with teens who send each other naked photos of themselves. Lawmakers tried this year to create a new, less serious charge for the offense. That effort failed, leaving district attorneys to work with laws many consider outdated. CPR's Sam Brash looks at one community's approach. I first met Lakewood teenager Philip Carlton over dinner at his home. On the menu, spaghetti tacos, a specialty of his dad, Michael. Those are exactly what they sound like. Mushy spaghetti served in taco shells. I saw it on a kid's show off uh, off of Nickelodeon when my kids were younger. Off of iCarly? Yeah. Yeah, off iCarly. How fast do you usually knock these out? Like 15, 20 minutes? (laughs) That's Philip. We changed his name for this story for reasons that'll be obvious in a second. And he underestimated himself on those tacos. He ate four in like five minutes. He's a typical high school freshman in more ways than just his appetite. He's lanky, he loves football, and he's received nude pictures of a girl. You know, we were just hanging out, and then we started playing Truth or Dare, and then one thing led to another, and we dared her to send us nudes. This was back in August. Philip was with a couple of other boys and this girl. She left and sent the images when she got home. But Philip forgot that his account fed messages to his phone and an iPad at his house. My mom had saw text messages and informed my dad. I came home, and then that's when I got confronted. I addressed it proactively and went to the school. Again, that's Michael, Philip's dad. They immediately turned it over to the school resource officer and... I met up with him, and he turned it over to the DA and took the phone as evidence, and it was pretty intense. That's when Philip and his parents found out what he was up against. The way that this law is written, it's it's considered a sex offense, so you could be on the sex offender registry. That's Cheryl Cosmerol. She's a clinical therapist who developed and teaches a class called Sexting Solutions. It's offered by the judicial district that covers Jefferson County, where Philip lives. Teenagers can take the class or risk getting hit with a felony child pornography charge. As soon as you're charged, the rules that you have to follow are so strict, which includes they can't have relationships, they can't have unsupervised contact with anyone three or more years younger than them, they can't go to any child-oriented places like amusement parks, parks, water parks. Serious stuff. Philip remembers when he realized what he had gotten himself into. It was definitely kind of like an on-switch to where I got to get my button gear, do this class, and finish it. And he did. It took $250 and five weeks. The class separates boys and girls to address the different motivations that lead to sexting. Alexis King is a deputy district attorney who helps with the course. Girls tell us that they created the picture because they wanted the boy to like them more. And what we hear from the boys is they wanted to see if they could get the picture. So for girls, the course focuses on guidelines for a healthy relationship. For boys, it's more about empathy, or as Philip puts it. To treat women with respect, a lot more respect, kind of dig deeper and just know, just to know them, not just to look at them and be like, dang. At the end of the course, all the kids make a final presentation to their parents and the DAs about how and why they sexted. Philip's dad was there. That's where I really started to see the value, is just hearing these kids talk. They were saying things that they wouldn't have said six weeks earlier. 
Sexting Solutions began three years ago as the first program of its kind in the state. Almost 150 kids have been through the class, and none of them have reoffended. Now, five other judicial districts in Colorado also offer courses that help kids avoid charges. Philip, for his part, doesn't want to forget what he learned. He keeps memorabilia on his dresser, Broncos tickets, signed pictures, but there's also a business card. Uh, that one's the diversion officer's um, card. From when you got caught? Yeah. When you look at it, like, what's running through your head? Don't be an idiot. Like, think before you act, basically. Because, like, every morning I open the drawer to get some socks and I see that. Philip says that helps as he checks Facebook and sends dozens of Snapchats a day. And his dad says that after seeing what Philip learned, he wishes that Sexting Solutions was a class kids took in school, not in the justice system. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Let's learn more about how the justice system handles sexting cases. Tom Raines is executive director of the Colorado District Attorney's Council. His group backs a much less severe charge for kids who sext. It has also looked into how DAs around the state handle such cases. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Nathan. Good to be here. As we heard in Sam's feature, Colorado law now treats sexting sexting between juveniles as child pornography. Why don't you believe that's the right approach? Those laws evolved out of the early 1990s and really from the federal level emanated down to the states in, in reaction to kind of the expansion of the Internet and the electronic media that we really weren't familiar with and, and until it you know, came on the scene in the mid to late 90s. And it was targeted at you know, pedophiles, uh, serious sexual offenders. And I don't think anyone at the time contemplated uh, where we would end up with cell phones and, and the, the ability of teens to trade these pictures so for us as district attorneys, we've actually been uh, discussing this issue for two or three years now. And last summer came together to really try to put together a plan to come up with something different, something that would still maintain a level of accountability when appropriate, uh, but not be so severe as to, to result in the potential of a sex offense, of a registration offense that, that is really in, uh, you know, intended for sex offenders. So how the law, should the law treat sexting in your view then? Well, I think with House Bill 1058 from Representative Willett and Fields, as well as Senator Newell, the the approach was a good one. It was balanced. We wanted to, to create a low-level misdemeanor. And there were several safety valves put into the bill also. For instance, listening to your piece here, Philip received a picture. Um, had he not asked for that picture and received it and reported it to his parent or to a, a teacher or to an authority under the bill, he would, have, he would have immediately been entitled to what we refer to as an affirmative defense, meaning um, essentially if those elements were established, the prosecutor wouldn't go forward with the case. We also started incorporating, after listening to some of the stakeholder groups, uh, other mechanisms for other scenarios to include um, a young person who potentially felt that the other, the other side of the equation wanted a picture from them and they truly believed that that picture would not go beyond that next person. Uh, we were going to create an affirmative defense there also potentially or a petty offense for that, for that type of conduct. But the intent in all of this was to create a very low-level crime, not, not dissimilar from what we would call criminal mischief is a similar crime that's a class 2 misdemeanor um, when kids go around and break a mailbox or something. It's kind of at that level. And what we do that for is to say this isn't something you should be doing. We don't want to punish you. We want to educate you. We want to keep you out of the system. But we got to have a mechanism just in case um, it goes too far. But but this House bill, uh, this session that addressed what you're talking about, it, it failed in a House committee by one vote. Why did it fail in that democratically controlled committee? 
Yeah, kind of the the ultimate issue, the threshold issue that 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 we just couldn't um, agree with was uh, there was a contingency that wanted to say that if teens are in a consensual relationship, and that's a very sticky wicket, if they are in a consensual relationship, then it should not be a crime at all. So now, two people dating each other. Two people dating. But in the context of a juvenile, the questions we had back is who defines that relationship? How long does it take place before it's a relationship? And what happens when that relationship is over? So if two 16-year-olds go to the movies on Friday, are they in a relationship? Uh, and if they break up Monday, are they still in a relationship? Or does, or if one of them thinks they are and says, well, I'm keeping the picture, how do we get the picture back? We can't without some sort of uh, legal mechanism. And, and so currently, this means that prosecutors will have to continue to work with this child porn- within this child pornography law. Is that right? That's accurate. And, and, it's, and it's really good for no one. I mean, we had three choices. Uh, leave things as they are, which is where, what we're left with right now. Um, do something and maybe not be perfect, but do something and make some progress. And, and that's what we thought House Bill 1058 would do. And certainly it would have been worthy of, of monitoring for a couple of years to see if we needed to come back or do what the, uh, what the opposition wanted, which was to send a legislative message to parents saying, we're going to say that your kids, if they're in a, if they think they're in a relationship can do this lawfully. So how are you handling this? The, the bill has failed. You're, you're where you are now. How are you dealing with this? Um, well, obviously, we want to revisit the legislation for next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where we're left now is, is kind of per the story. There are five or six jurisdictions that have very um, active, aggressive, and, and um, progressive programmings related to sexting. There are other district attorney's offices that don't have the resources um, or, or the money, frankly, to put together programs like this. But they are being very creative. How so? Sure. So some of the smaller jurisdictions I've reached out to, these are colleagues of mine, and, and you, can, you can talk about Lamar, Mesa County, uh-huh. uh, Montrose. The feedback I get primarily is the majority of the cases don't even come to their door. They are trusting the SROs, the school resource officers, handle a lot of these within the schools, or local police officers handling these between the kids and the parents. It's only those situations where I think law enforcement is finding uh, the potential of Someone's been harassed or intimidated or, or these pictures are being used for you know, nefarious purposes that they're coming to the DA's offices. And even then, they're carefully scrutinized because the last thing we want to do is charge a teenager with a class three felony sex offense if we, if, if we don't have to. But do you find cases where you have kids being charged as sex offenders? They're out there. Um, they're out there for sure. Um, <clears throat> so, so let me get this straight. There is a Colorado kid who has sexted, who will be forever branded a sex offender? Well, I can't answer the back end of that question because in those cases where, they're, where they have been charged, it's usually been in, in many ways to, to get control over the, over the child's conduct by putting them within the juvenile system. And, but it's usually done under the context of what's called a deferred judgment, meaning we're going to charge you with this, but if you, take, if you take care of matters, if you go to these classes, if you, get, you know, keep your nose clean, they, this case will be dismissed and you won't suffer the same ramifications. On that point, though, uh, there are those who don't think run-of-the-mill sexting should ever be a crime. Uh, Amy Hasnoff studies sexting at CU Denver. It, it might seem counterintuitive at first, but she doesn't want the law reduced because then, she says, prosecutors would file charges more often. Prosecutors are really hesitant to use child pornography charges against teenagers, as they should be, but they're going to be less hesitant to use a misdemeanor charge against a teenager. How do you respond to that? Sure. I I think the evolution of what the district attorneys are doing um, contradicts that point. 
you see the, the, the bigger offices putting together these programs. That's generating interest from all the other district attorneys. I don't think it matters what level the charge is. We focus on the conduct and what's in the best interest of the child when we file any charge against a child. So whether it's a petty offense, whether it's a high-level misdemeanor or a high-level felony, we only do it if we believe it's the right thing to do. So I don't think it's going to impact the number of cases that get get filed. And I do want to stay with, with Hasna for a second, though, because she sees another problem with misdemeanor or felonies that treat all instances of sexting as criminal. They both treat sexting as though it's just wrong no matter what, and they don't make any distinction between whether the sexting is consensual or whether it's not consensual. So it's basically like saying sexual assault and sex are the same thing, and we're just going to charge people for doing either one. What do you think? I think that's a mischaracterization. Um, First, it's not the criminal justice system. It's the juvenile justice system. Very different input and output in that system. Uh, but, you know, it's not distinguishing, it's not saying you're, you're a sex offender just because you sexed. It's not lumping it all together. And, and, you know, I've heard the example of, well, teenagers are allowed to, they can have sex and no one does anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they can't have sex in the park. They can't do it in public. And that's the danger here, right? Because these photos can go public on Facebook and, and, and all these places. We can't control where they end up. And we're trying to protect the children. So that's why we have numerous provisions on uh, for teenagers. We have curfew laws. You know, we know things kids do that, that we need to send messages. We need to deter. We need to educate. And, and so the law is not there to punish them. It's to give guidelines and put rails on the system so that they understand. What are your next steps moving forward? You say there are, there are DAs that are, that are creating programs or others that don't have the funding, but they're being creative. Where do we go from here? You could talk about that. Yeah, I, the conversation needs to keep happening because, because we do need to do something. You know, there are, there are several states that have gone ahead with this, and, and we need to be one of them. Uh, the one thing that I don't think prosecutors or law enforcement can ever get to is letting teenagers define a consensual relationship and thereby making it okay. Uh, that's just we can get around that by the by wording, by how we do it, uh, by the intent of the messaging. Um, and we can solve this problem. But using the word consent is dangerous. So uh, f- final thought here. Is it right that the law restricts sexting because sexting is risky? Yes. And, and we'll leave it at that. Tom, thanks for being here. Tom Raines is the executive director of the Colorado District Attorney's Council. He explained why prosecutors want a lesser charge for sexting. Colorado law now treats it as child pornography. Still to come, bringing back historic apple varieties to southwest Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. At the turn of the century, the town of Cortez in southwest Colorado was world famous for apples. Four Corners apples took top awards at state and world fairs, but many of those rare award-winning varieties and the orchards they grew in are gone. Now there's an effort to bring them back. Jude Schonemeyer and his wife Addie have devoted themselves to an antique apple revival. They hope their Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project can save old Colorado apple varieties from extinction and make them popular again. Hey, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Jude, your southwest corner of the state is known for pinto beans and for the ancient ruins of Mesa Verde National Park, but it was once also known globally for exceptional apples, a crop that you hope to revive. Why are apples from your area so special? 
you know, good agricultural land is always good agricultural land. Some of what made the fruit here so good is the altitude, I think. You know, we get these beautiful, warm, sunny days, and we get cooler nighttime temperatures, and that allows the fruit to set in a way that just makes them look better and taste better. So can you give me some history of these apples? How did the Four Corners end up having so many unusual apple varieties? Well, the Southwest District here was the last, it was sort of the last of the fruit districts. There were four fruit districts in Colorado traditionally. The first two were the Northeast up from Denver to Fort Collins and the Southeast District around Florence Canyon City. The folks that started a lot of the orchards down here were from other places, but a couple of them actually lived in Florence for a while, Canyon City area, and we know that in 1890 they went back there to get a lot of their source material for these orchards. When these were first planted, there was just a lot of genetic diversity. This was before everything went to a monoculture, so they had a lot to choose from. Uh, A monoculture, what do you you mean by that? In the 1920s, by By the 1910s, people realized that consumers wanted shiny red apples. And so by the 1920s, Colorado Egg College, which is now CSU, and the Extension Services started telling people, get rid of all of these other kind of varieties. Partially, it was a matter, it's hard to sell 20 different or 30 different varieties of apples. And partially, they felt like the thing that we should have are just a few red apples. The problem with that was that when you did that, it put us into direct competition with Washington State on the commodity market, and they can grow more fruit consistently. I think our apples are better quality, but they can grow more. The other thing that happened with this is when all of your apples are mostly two or three varieties and you are growing fruit at 6,500 to 7,000 feet, which we are down here, we're one of the highest fruit districts anywhere, you get these catastrophic spring frosts that take them all out. If you have many varieties, you'll lose some some years. Some years you might lose everything, but most years you'll get something. So these are like the delicious apples we see in our stores, or, or, or the Jonathan apples. I think that's another one that I've heard as well, these, these shiny red apples that we're used to. Yeah, absolutely. What really went was the delicious, and we're talking a much older kind of delicious than what you'd see in the store now. Delicious kept being bred for or selected. Uh, you'd get an anomalous branch off of a tree that was more red, so they would graft off of that. The taste wasn't important. The color was what was important. And then Johnny's and, and a lot of Rome's were put in, you know, and there's nothing wrong with any of those, but there's a lot more out there than just those three varieties. So how many of these vintage orchards have survived? A lot. We've identified about 200 of them so far from years of work at this, talking to people. We go set up at Four States Egg Expo at the county fair every year and ask people about orchards and fruit, and it's a great place for us to see a lot of the older Montezuma County folks. So far, we've mapped using using GPS about 3,000 points, I think, and about 65, 60, 65 of the orchard. So we figure we have about two years' worth left of, of the actual mapping part to know what our resource is fully. And when you find them, are they in good shape, or, or do you have to kind of, you know, hack through bushes and things to find these, these orchards? Some, because we're, we're drier, we don't have the same conditions that feral orchards and other and wetter parts of the, of the country have. So it's not so much hacking through. But we do, some of the orchards are in great shape. Some of them are kind of feral and neglected. Some of them are remnants that the trees are really not in great shape, but we can go find those trees, take cuttings off of them, and repropagate them. Some of the ones from the 1920s and 30s, we could get back into shape. They could still be phenomenally productive orchards. And some of these orchards have been restored. It's just going in and cutting out the deadwood and starting to prune and being patient and looking big with it.
So, so tell me some of the varieties that you've been able to bring back from the verge of extinction. Give me the names of some of them. So a couple that we found, uh, there's one we found over in Canyon City, the Colorado orange apple, which we're really proud of. It was one of the few apples that ever went and was known outside of Colorado itself. It has an important tie to Colorado history in that it was a chance seedling on Jesse Frazier's orchard there. Jesse Frazier is credited with having the first commercially successful orchard in Colorado. We're talking in the 1860s, so way, way back when. And this was just a chance seedling found in his orchard that was growing in rows, so they left it and it bore fruit, and they really liked it a lot. So we're really proud of that and the historic tie to it. Another one we found is called the Cedar Hill Black, which again was believed to be extinct. We sort of found that accidentally in looking for the the Colorado orange. Um, There's a lot of circumstances that that it's always a lot of circumstances that come together to let us find something something like that. Now, now, now I want to ask, I keep hearing Colorado orange. That sounds like an apple that should be pretty popular in this state. Can, can you describe what makes the Colorado orange so special and, and so different from, say, the, the Red Delicious that, that we've been talking about? Yeah, so Colorado orange is a winter apple. you got to remember in America in the 1800s, there was 17,000 varieties of apples. Now we're down to about six. The ones that had the greatest levels of extinction were summer apples and winter apples. Most of the apples you go buy in a store are fall apples. They're not really meant to be kept. They're kept in cold storage, high humidity, 30-something degrees year-round to keep them sort of fresher. Winter apples, you just put them in a root cellar, and they would keep until spring. You normally wouldn't even start eating them until Christmas or so quite often. You know, you'd go through your fall apples first, and then you'd go start start working through your boxes of winter apples. So the winter apples tend to have an incredibly complex flavor range. You know, when you see apples in the grocery store, the Galas Fujis, those are sort of considered subacid, a little bit of sweet, a little bit of tart. The winter apples tend to have these complex, complex flavor profiles to them. I mean, they can be from vanilla to honey to butterscotch, curry kind of flavors to them. And that's the Colorado orange. It's got this just open-in-your-mouth kind of flavor to it, and especially as it sits longer. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're talking by phone with Jude Schuenmeyer in Cortez. Schuenmeyer and his wife, they hope their Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project can save old Colorado apple varieties from extinction and make them popular again. Uh, you obviously love apples. You and your wife, Addie, describe yourselves as, uh, quote, apple crazy. Uh, everywhere you go, you're examining old apple trees. Uh, I, I want to clip, uh, listen to a clip here. Uh, Addie talking about what it means to be an apple addict. There's so much diversity, um, so many different varieties of apples, colors, textures. Um, I could eat apples. Oh, gosh, we in the summer when we're out mapping, we, we just we eat them all day. And all day the next day, we never get sick or sick of them. No. Yeah, we're definitely apple crazy. You started the Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project in 2008 and received some funding from the Colorado Department of Agriculture. What have been some of the highlights of this project? You know, it's sort of multi-phase because some of it is, is the history that we find that we discover. We have been so fortunate in the kindness of people around Montezuma County and across the state when we go in and are looking for trees around the rest of the state that people let us onto their farms. They tell us their stories. They share their lives and the, the histories of their families with us. And it's just been this amazing thing. Then there's the actual getting to see the fruit and taste them and, and see these varieties that haven't been seen or sort of were forgotten for generations. 
And then there's the aspect of actually being able to rebuild an economy again and actually doing something with this. So, so rebuilding an economy meaning taking these apples, let's say, to market across the front range? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. The apple market now especially is just booming. You know, partially that's driven by the cider makers up there, and partially it's driven by people's desire to eat more regionally grown, local grown foods, food within a food shed, and food that tastes good again. And I want to talk about the cider makers. You mentioned them. Jay uh, Kenny is a Denver phila- uh, philanth- philanthropist, rather, and cider maker. Uh, he's one of those that loves your apples. I want to pay a, a cut of him. What's extraordinary about the heritage apples uh, in, in the Montezuma Valley is that even the apples that we think of today as not very interesting, the Red Delicious, the Roms, the Jonathans, they taste different uh, when they're 100 years old. And that's because they haven't been um, bred and crossbred for extended shelf life and color and size. Um, there are also these other apples down there like winter bananas and uh, stamens that, that are beyond good. They're just extraordinarily good. Do you think that you could ramp up your scale of production with these these heritage apples that you're growing? Is there enough there? And then on top of that, is there the the employee uh, aspect there of people actually you know plucking these uh, these apples? Yeah. So the answer to the first question is absolutely. I know that we can ramp this up. One of our goals is to restore the older orchards, get them into more productive shape. That's not going to happen overnight. Pruning is a multi-year facet. It always is, whether it's a newer tree or an older tree. Um, So we know we've got to be patient. At the same time, though, we have this beautiful resource of these old trees that are producing, you know, 10 bushels a tree or more, some of them. We need to get people replanting newer orchards, and part of that is to rethink orchards. If you go around Delta County, you know, they really kept up with the fruit trends. In their orchards, there are 40 acres of apples on dwarf root stock on trellises that are maybe 500 to 1,000 apples per per, trees per acre. What we want to see is an easier version where we use the land and water down here to plant these on bigger rootstocks again. A lot of these old varieties don't like being on dwarf rootstock. They're not as vigorous. They're not healthy on those, and they they really don't live very well on those type of rootstocks. So I know we can revamp our orchards and get new ones planted here. Labor is always difficult that doesn't mean it's impossible. One of the big sources of labor here in the old days was the housewives, kids would go off to school, the wives had time in their hands in the fall, and they needed to make money for clothes for kids for school and to save up money for Christmas. We still have that here. There's plenty of stay-at-home moms, stay-at-home dads that are raising their kids that may not be able to go work nine-to-five job or stock in Walmart at night or whatever, but they would love to be able to get out into orchards and, and pick pick apples. And so, yeah, it's not going to be a 401k great retirement kind of thing, but it's better than a lot of what opportunities are here for them now. So it could be kind of like a family affair. Jude, thanks so much yes. for uh, for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. Jude Schuenmeyer is a founder of the Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project. He and his wife, Addie, now work as orchardists for the project. They've made it their mission in life to save and restore the old apple varieties that once made the Cortez area known far and wide for growing the best apples in the world. Just ahead, exploring the craft beer explosion around the world. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. 
the 500-year-old Reinheitsgebot, or German Beer Purity Law 1516, lays out how all beer in that country must be brewed. But craft brewers from around the world have challenged those mandates lately by bringing new flavors and styles of beer to Germany. Charlie Papazian is considered by some a god in the craft brewing world. He says this is happening all over the world as craft brewers push back on national ideals of what beer can be and how it can be enjoyed. Charlie, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here talking about beer. So I visited Bavaria in the southern part of Germany earlier this year and had a German-brewed IPA. I guess that's a rare thing, apparently. Is this what you're talking about when we think of craft brewing communities making inroads around the world? Yes, it is. Uh, Germany is has been is a relatively uh, conservative beer country. They make great beer, but they really haven't come around to this idea of other kinds of beer other than brewed by the Reinheitsgebot law that's been in place for 500 years. But yes, the IPA is one example of of the flavor and diversity that is beginning to creep into German beer culture. And so, uh, of course, Germany has those pilsners that everyone, you know, is in such high demand. Do you know why laws like this were set up in the first place? Well, the the Reinheitsgebot was put into place 500 years ago, allegedly as a purity law to make sure the beer was pure and clean and not being uh, adulterated with ingredients that people at the time were uh, averse to. But, you know, the backstory is that, you know, uh, the church and governments love to control uh, the beer beer business, beer industry, as it were, in those times, mm-hmm. because they wanted their fair share. And uh, the, so many of the ingredients that uh, were controlled, actually, there were quite a few ingredients controlled in those times. And so there were laws that were were put into place so that uh, people had – the governments and religious groups had control over what went into beer so that they could – Get money from it, it society. seems. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. In that sense. Yeah. So those who control it can, can, get, can you know, benefit from that. Uh, you know, our conversation today is an extension of one we heard yesterday on Colorado Matters. It was with an Italian brewer who now lives in Colorado. He said, well, living in Italy, he had a strong desire to brew something different than the type of beers his country was making. He called them bland and he called them unappealing. Is that the spark you see in other growing craft beer communities around the world? Well, there, you know, by my estimate, there are over seven, 8,000 uh, new brewers that have sprung up all over the world, and that's not including the 4,300 that are here in this country of the USA. Hmm. So it's happening all over the world at a time when mega brew, the consolidation of the largest brewers, is happening. So what is this phenomenon about? It's 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 incredible. It's exciting. It's about um, beer cultures and beverage cultures and food cultures beginning to understand the value of flavor and diversity. And that's what's at the root of all of, all of this movement throughout the world, whether it's Asia, Europe, Africa, South and Central America. It's, it's happening all over the world. It's a fundamental awareness that's emerging about valuing local, valuing flavor, valuing diversity. So so why are these countries reluctant to try new flavors and styles of beer? You mentioned Germany, but how about the UK or, or maybe the Czech Republic for, for that matter? Why, why People are reluctant. 
usually they're reluctant, and they have been reluctant in this country, in the USA. Um, you know, if you live through the 70s, um, 80s, the 60s, we were somewhat brainwashed as to to enjoy and appreciate light lager beer and beer as only one commodity, one style. Hmm. Um, so, and that's the case in everywhere in the country. As the large brewers became bigger and bigger, they controlled the market. It was more profitable to make one or two kinds of beers. And, um, you, you know, flavor and diversity disappeared. And so it, it became ingrained in a cultural thing. It, and this, that's the same way with food as well. Um, you know, the slow food movement is a, is, is a pushback against those same fundamental premises. Um, so that is what, what is at the root of, of, you know, the emergence of these, these small brewers that are going against the major trends. And one of the, the large, fa- the biggest factors in their success is that they put a lot of, they need to put a lot of effort into educating mm. the beer drinkers about this new type of beverage we call craft beer. So where are some of these new communities popping up around the world? Give me some examples. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, you know, in South America, Argentina, Brazil, and Chile, Peru, are so, and Colombia are, are, are a few countries that have hundreds, if not, you know, we're talking about a thousand, more than a thousand small breweries in the, just those four countries. In Asia, uh, Taiwan, Japan, Singapore, Vietnam. Um, of course, there's China, but getting information and statistics out of China is not, mm. not mm. an endeavor yeah. that is usually successful. Um, and there's a lot happening in, in in Europe, not only in the countries that we you know that are high profile countries. Let's say that like the Netherlands, the UK, Spain. Uh, uh, Germany, uh, France, but smaller countries, Ukraine, Croatia, Slovakia, there, there are fundamentally homebrewing communities that are emerging and these homebrewers are, that's part, also part of uh, the success story is that fundamentally where there are strong homebrewing communities, these homebrewers and the communities that are, are evolve around these homebrewing communities emerge and begin to start these new entrepreneurial businesses. And, you know, it all goes back to the beer. If These beers taste different. They taste great. People enjoy them. And it's usually their reactions are, wow, I never knew beer could taste like this. It's the same thing the USA went through in the, in the 70s and 80s and the 90s. Um, it's an evolution. What, what's happening in Europe and Asia, South Central America, um, is something that is, happened here. It seems it's to me. something that yeah. happened here. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking to Charlie Perpazian, an author and craft brewing pioneer. Uh, Charlie, what are some of the most creative things you're seeing coming out of these sort of startup craft brew scenes around the world? Well, once once these countries all over the world and, the, and the, these breweries emerge and they, and they become skilled brewmasters and, and, and understand the fundamentals, science, and art of brewing, they begin to explore successfully um, using what I would refer to as indigenous ingredients and integrating uh, cultural aspects of 
the environment that they live in, live in whether it's the, in the process or in the ingredients or um, the, the food culture. Uh, so that is one thing that's very interesting. If you're traveling around the world and you're exploring the world of craft beer, you will find great examples of German pilsners and German lagers, English ales, Belgian ales, American-style IPAs, um, and many others. But then there's this added twist, and you're seeing that in this country too, that people are beginning to use unusual ingredients, local ingredients, much like the way beer was probably brewed five or 6,000 years ago. We're going back in time. We're going forward by going backwards in, in, in the way we approach beer. And it was interesting. In yesterday's conversation with an Italian brewmaker, he was a brewmaster. He was saying, I uh, use cigars and things like that and, and flavors of tobacco and things in his, in, in his beer simply because he was kind of what he said, quote, the Galapagos Island of, of beer in Italy at that time. I, I love the Italians. I, I was introduced to the first craft brewers back in around, around 1998 when I was visiting the first meetings of Slow Food. And I met the brewers there. And I tasted some of the beers. And I, I call the Italian brewers the poets of craft beer. Poets. Um, one, of, one of the most memorable beers I had was an Italian Saison that was brewed with lichen. In that grew in the valley on the north side of a hillside, <laughs> and this beer was unique, to say the least. So have any of these countries, I know Italy has done this, turned to Colorado specifically for their inspiration? Yes, they, um, you know, that's, it, it, it is a phenomenon. I don't know exactly how to explain it, but, you know, Colorado has had a lot to offer um, the craft beer uh, community and the in the and in the early development, there were quite a few home brewers and craft brewers involved in in nineteen in the nineteen seventies. Um, of course, we have the you know the Great American Beer Festival, which is celebrating its thirty sixth, I think it's its thirty fourth, thirty fifth anniversary which this you, fall which you here founded, in Denver. By the way, which you founded? Yes, which I founded. It was started out of very small. We it was hard to sell tickets to an event. For people to try beers that they never had ever heard of before, um, but that was those were the early days. Um, but you know, there's always been a strong community, and it all evolves around and revolves around the beer that's being made and the quality of the beer, and that's what's happening elsewhere. You know, here's an example in Germany. It was unheard of up until a few, just a few years ago, that you could go, you would encounter a German beer festival where different brewers would serve their beers. It had always been one beer festival, one beer, and- one beer or two beers or three beers from one brewery. Now they're collaborating. They're learning uh, from the collaboration and the, the the types of festivals we have in this country. And Charlie, how it is. We, yes. I got to leave it there. I got to leave okay. it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Great. It's been fun talking about beer. International beer expert and homebrewing pioneer Charlie Papazian. He's the author of books such as The Complete Joy of Homebrewing and Microbrewed Adventures, A Lupulin-Filled Journey to the Heart and Flavor of the World's Great Craft Beers. Just ahead, the epic symphonies of Gustav Mahler come to Boulder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Gustav Mahler wrote epic symphonies. And since 1987, musicians have traveled to Boulder each spring to play one of them. Mahler's pieces can last more than an hour and sometimes require hundreds of musicians. 
This is Mahler's Seventh Symphony, which will be performed at the festival next weekend. This year marks the biggest change in the event's history. The conductor who founded Mahler Fest has stepped down, and for the first time someone new will be at the podium. He is Kenneth Woods. Welcome, Ken. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Robert Olson, the conductor who started and ran Mahlerfest, won international recognition for his work at Mahlerfest. That great recording we just heard was from a concert he conducted. Is it daunting to fill his shoes? The honest answer, not particularly. And that's nothing to do with the impact that Bob had on the festival, which is uh, immeasurable and enormous. But for musicians every day, you know, we have to come to terms with the score. And that's ultimately what we measure our success or failure by. And every week it's a challenge. uh, And every week we question whether we've got any business going out on stage. So that's where the real pressure comes from is is, uh, living up to Mahler. And I'm sure Bob feels the same way when he goes on stage, too. And you were nine or ten years old when you heard Mahler for the first time at a symphony concert. What did you hear and and what do you remember from that? I remember it as being almost an out-of-body experience. I had been warned uh, by a friend who played in the orchestra, a student of my father's, that uh, the piece was very, very, very long, but it didn't feel long to me. The performance felt somehow transfiguring. And uh, at the end of it, I wasn't sure if it had lasted five minutes or five days. And I'd never had a piece of music have that effect on me before. And it it obviously did something to my brain, and I've never been the same since. And this is a recording you conducted. This is the piece you heard. That's the piece that I heard. That's Das Lied von der Erde, the song of the earth, Mahler's great love song to eternity and nature. And you're hearing the uh, beautiful voice of Emma Curtis, wonderful contralto in that, that particular song from Das Lied. And uh, yeah, it's not like any other music. Incredible stuff. And so you're wide-eyed the entire, the entire performance. Yeah, I mean, as much as any nine-year-old can focus on anything that long. But I think it was more to do with the cumulative impact of the piece on, on me at that age, rather than all the moment-to-moment details, which are very rich and interesting. Which, of course, you've, you've no, like, the back of your hand, I'm assuming now. Well, I hope so. <laughs> Although, i got to say, you know, the score from Mahler 7 is well over 300 pages. And I've done the piece before, but every time I look at it, I think, how am I going to remember this all at the gig? Mahler Fest brings hundreds of musicians who volunteer to come play this music in Boulder. And Mahler is not a household name like Mozart or, or Beethoven. What about Mahler's music inspires this kind of passion? I think it's the combination of the scope of the music, which you alluded to. It needs a huge orchestra that takes place over a long period of time. It has this grandeur. You feel he's dealing with the biggest questions of life, nature, eternity, all of that. On the other hand, it's very personal music. There's always the sense of Mahler, the individual, standing in for all of us and what it's like to be an individual person. And then it's just fantastically gorgeous, unbelievably beautiful, really rewarding to play, you know, some of the best tunes ever written. And, uh, I think that's why people love it, is that combination of, of scope, 
breadth and intimacy. So if one goes to, to a symphony uh, normally and then goes to a Mahler symphony, will they see a, a bigger stage? With, with How is that laid out? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Will they know this is going to be a Mahler being played? I think they will. They'll look out there and see four flutes instead of two. They'll see a wall of percussion instead of just a timpanist. Uh, you know, his symphonies range in scope. You know, the seventh is not among the very biggest, but it's certainly a bigger orchestra than most people would be used to. And the other thing you'll notice is there's not that much more on the program, that it really is Mahler, Mahler, and in this case, a short piece by Kurt Schwertzig. In addition to conducting, you've built your reputation as a music blogger. There's this satire post on your blog about an imaginary orchestra that announces it's going to stop performing and recording so it can focus on social media and wearing colorful shirts on stage. This is a quote. Our research shows us that for every concert we cancel, we can buy a whole new set of brightly colored T-shirts, one for everyone in the orchestra. So what's this post about? (laughs) Well, I think we live in a time where we're very, very aware of the need to engage with our communities and uh, a need to show what we offer the community. But at the end of the day, all of that is there to make it possible for us to deliver music to the communities we serve. And the music has got to be absolutely at the focal point. Music is like uh, cultural nutrition. And you can put all the other decorative stuff around it, the engagement, the attitude, the friendly, smiling faces, all of which are incredibly important. But if there's not that nutrition of music at the heart of what we do, then it doesn't mean anything. And so Mahlerfest then is interesting because it's known to Mahler fans around the globe, but but not all that well-known by classical music fans in Colorado. Uh, Do you think there's a way to use digital media like we were just talking about to build the festival's local profile? I hope so. I mean, that's uh, to be seen. It's the beginning of a voyage for me. Certainly, I live in that world of blogging, social media, broadcasting, recording. I'm hoping that some of that experience and expertise will will be of help to to Mahlerfest. Uh, What we've found is that social media is an incredibly powerful tool for building one's international reputation. But building reputation locally is about making human connections. And I think part of the future success of Mahlerfest We'll be having more of a footprint in the community year-round, not just the week of the festival, that during the festival there's something going on for the public every day of the week. It's not just the big concerts at the end. And uh, really investing the time and energy to make human connections with our listeners. Mahlerfest themes in like a good fit for a conductor who works on different platforms like yourself. The the festival revolves around the big orchestral performance each year, but there's also seminars, like you said, and, and film screenings related to the composer's work. Before we go, uh, as we said, you're playing Mahler's Seventh Symphony this year, and you told us this may be Mahler's most world-embracing piece. What does that mean for someone who's going to hear it? I think they're going to hear the sounds of nature, uh, and what better setting than than Colorado for that? Uh, in fact, on the very first page of the score, Mahler described the opening as the sound of, he said, "Here, nature roars." Uh, much of the symphony is very nocturnal in nature. You really do see the moon and the stars. Uh, the fourth movement is a beautiful love song, a little serenade, and then in the last movement of the symphony, Mahler has the sun come up and suddenly we're emptied into modern urban life with all of its noise and energy and joyful distraction. Well, let's hear a little more of it. This is Mahler's Seventh Symphony.
Ken, thanks for joining us. It's been a great pleasure. Kenneth Woods leads the musicians at Colorado Mahler Fest in Boulder for the first time next weekend. They'll play Mahler's Seventh Symphony on May 21st and 22nd. Find more details and our interview from last year with Mahler Fest founder Robert Olson at cprnews.org. And that's our show for this Thursday. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day. <laughs>